Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is the first ever Secretary of State for leaving the European Union, David Davis. And we talk a lot about that and the Brexit negotiations, what it was like actually inside that process, his departure from government and why he left when he did. There's some such hilarious details around checkers and that whole process that are brilliant. And of course, we talk about the current prime minister and why David came to the conclusion that he has to go and what their relationship is like. This is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, before that, um, my forthcoming guests, I've added a couple too. So um, my next guest on the 11th of July, I mean, I can't wait for this. The Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, what a massive character and one of the new dominant figures in our politics and someone who features a lot in my <laughs> new comedy show two weeks after that oh the king returns the 25th of july alan johnson uh, one of the most popular politicians this country's ever produced someone who could have been prime minister and of course that great clip of him uh, from election night where it's him and um john landsman from momentum is just continually goes viral and i'm now booking into the autumn including on the 17th of october when my guest will be matt hancock so some amazing guests coming up get tickets for those at mattford.com or by clicking the link in the show notes and um, but today david davis i was really looking forward to this and it absolutely delivers and he's a really thoughtful bloke so we talk a lot in detail about um, the state of the Tory party now and the mood on the Conservative benches and why Conservative MPs aren't happy with Boris Johnson, what he thinks about all this. And this is just like a really good detailed picture of the modern state of the Tory party. But we do also talk about Theresa May's government. And also we talk about his relationship with other prime ministers, including Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. Um, but his relationship with Michelle Barnier is very interesting as well. So there's a ton of stuff in here. But of course, uh, we start with um, the joy of uh, the last fortnight in British politics. A Tory donor this week paid £120,000 to have dinner with Boris Johnson, Theresa May and David Cameron at the same time. Uh, I think most people pay £120,000 not to, but <laughs> that dinner's going to be very... I mean, I'm not sure the three of them have spoken. I mean, you're in the middle of that triangle. It's going to be very awkward. Um, Theresa, can you ask Boris to pass the port to the left? Or does he not think that the, the rules apply to him? Oh, well, Theresa, you tell Dick. Uh, that I'm in charge now. Uh, and no one cares what this pig fucker thinks. <laughs> we'll see Theresa May pass that message on in front of some bewildered Tory donor, but... Uh, of course, uh, the biggest story really affecting the whole country is uh, rail strikes. We've got rail strikes, hyperinflation, the return of polio. It's like the 1970s. Might have a few beers and drive home, just to... Uh, <laughs> Just to get in the mood. Uh, and the, uh, the star of this strike, of course, has been the General Secretary of the RMT, Mick Lynch, who, whatever you think of his politics, is a phenomenal interviewee and has owned Maidley, Morgan, Burley. I mean, you've got to go on YouTube and see these clips. The best one, though, is when he's up against Chris Philp, uh, a Tory MP. And he's, what's amazing about Mick Lynch, if you've not seen him, sort of bald guy with big eyebrows, but very, very calm. Very softly, looks hard as nails, but very, very softly spoken Londoner. And Chris Phillips starts saying, well, the RMT, uh, they've refused to meet with the government. And he just very calmly goes, you're lying. <laughs> Stop lying. That is an outright lie. You are lying. 
He's a liar. You're like, this is amazing. What seven minutes of him just tell this guy, you're lying. You're a liar. It's so funny to watch. The, I mean, it, I, God knows what he's like in daily life. I mean, you would never want to be an estate agent trying to sell that guy a flat. You told me this community was vibrant and up and coming. I've just witnessed someone do a shit in the street and burgle the house they were defecating outside of. You are a liar. Stop lying. This conservatory is not spacious. It's a porch. You're a liar. I mean, this guy's gone so viral. You're like, he's gonna be on that cameo video messaging app by the end of the week. I would love to have a video of Mick Lynch calling me like, Hi Lee, uh, just want to say hi, Mick Lynch here. Have a great 40th birthday at the weekend, although having seen your picture, I think you're a lot older there. You're a liar. <laughs> Stop lying. You have a party big enough, we'll come and have a picket outside of it, all right? Stop lying. You've got to what? I mean, some of the best telling you'll ever see, just a, a bald cockney telling a story of it. You're a liar. I bet Chris Felt hears that every time he wakes up in the morning now. I'm a liar. <laughs> I've got to stop lying. It's amazing television. Uh, of course, the RMT disaffiliated from the Labour Party a very long time ago, and they've been slightly annoyed with Keir Starmer. He didn't want Labour MPs uh, going on picket lines, and uh, some people would say, well, Keir Starmer should be there. You know, the leader of the Labour Party should be there. And you think, I mean, Keir Starmer, for all his strengths, is not a man you want on a picket line. What do we want? We want a solution that all sides can come around and agree. That doesn't just support trade unions and their staff, but the employers and crucially the passengers. The rail network doesn't just exist for staff and for profit, it's to get people around. When do we want it? Within a reasonable time. <laughs> Did anyone come to the show with David Davis in 2015? No, excellent. I'm not going to ask him the same questions, don't worry. That was uh, just to check. He is uh, one of the best guests I've ever interviewed on this show. And I know I say that about everyone, but it's always true. And uh, has a phenomenal political career. Stood against David Cameron for the Tory leadership in 2005. Became the first ever Secretary of State for exiting the European Union. And is now one of the most articulate critics of his former cabinet colleague, the now Prime Minister, for the time being, Boris Johnson. He is also renowned on left and right and around the world as a fearless champion for free speech and civil liberties. Please raise the roof for David Davis! <laughs> David, welcome to the show. Yeah, different questions will be the same answers, though. <laughs> I, got, I heard you like red wine, so I got you a bottle of... Uh, 2016 Rioja. That sounds perfect. It's the only reason I'm on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you just tell me when. Oh, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> All right, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to enjoy yourself. So, David, wow. What a few years it's been for you, from the centre of Brexit negotiations to now... The periphery. <laughs> I was going to say, in a way, to, to arguably a more popular position with, uh, with a different tribe, which is... Your articulate and, and calm um, critique of, of the current Prime Minister. I mean, this is someone that you're in cabinet with, that you campaigned to leave the European Union with. How hard has it been for you to be so public, and especially in the House of Commons, that claustrophobic atmosphere against your former wingman? Well, it wasn't easy, but, but you know, if you're thinking about my request for him to leave. Um, the, uh, I literally decided on the morning. 
you know, I was my, my morning routine. I get up and I and I and I cycle. I cycle on a static bike and a rowing machine and, and, and row on a rowing machine for about twenty minutes. And I listen to the night before's news, which I've recorded because normally we don't get home in time to to see telephone news. And I saw him uh, basically saying it wasn't my fault. That wasn't quite the words he used, but he said they t- they, they didn't tell me. Or, or you know, was, I implicitly believed uh, that it was a you, you, you can do it. But you actually, why don't you act the part? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I need some more wine. Yeah, you would. <laughs> and the uh, and basically he was blaming his subordinates. And for me, that's a no-no, you know. And, and I've been defending him for a couple of months, and, and I was getting less and less persuaded, and the facts were coming in, and so on. So I decided that, you know, I, I had to do something about it. So I came in, I went to see the speaker, I said, can you call me last? Um, always the best place to be. <laughs> and, uh, and he did, and, well, the rest is, well, almost literally history. <laughs> went around the world. Um, and that was that. And I knew I'd make a thousand enemies that day. I mean, that was obvious. Um, but I just thought it was necessary for somebody to say. I mean, a lot of the youngsters were fretting about it, a lot of the younger MPs, uh, and nobody very senior was saying anything about it. So, you know, it's, it's my, at the end of the day, it's my duty to do it. So that was, that's the genesis of it. That's how it happened, you know. Um, and it wasn't easy, um, but on the other hand, I was quite pleased I'd done it when I did it. Yeah. And... Were any, was anyone sort of getting a whiff of it in advance? Did, did the whip start to think, actually, David Davis is one to watch? And, and, and did Boris talk to you at all before or after that? No, no. I never t- when I do these things, I never tell anybody. Um, all, my, all my friends get very cross with me because I don't consult with them when I make a big decision, whether it's, you know, call for the Prime Minister to go or it's a by-election or, you know, resignation, you know, all these things I just do. Um, and so I never consult. And partly just because nobody can keep a secret in politics. It isn't a standard rule. You know? <laughs> they always leak. So you, know, so you just don't tell anybody. It's, it saves them the trouble, really. But that must be, just for the drama of it, when you know you're about to deliver as a senior, respected member of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, that you're going to do this on TV in that arena where he's just a few yards away, and you'd know that during that speech we were going to cotton on to what's coming. Mm. How you structure that speech, where you put certain points, there must in a way be a thrill to that. No, I'm not that, I'm an adrenaline junkie, but not that sort of adrenaline junkie. Actually, <laughs> I've, I've suddenly realised, I told you a fib, I did tell, I did tell two people. Um, the two people who are sitting either side of me, um, in camera shot. I thought, this is going to do terrible things for their career. <laughs> so, so I wrote it out and I said, just so you know, this is what I'm going to say. And to be fair to both of them, neither of them moved. <laughs> I, you know, I thought they might. Um, but no, it, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, um, you know, but, but, it's, but it's not life-threatening. So no, it's, no I, don't, I, I don't particularly get a thrill out of that. And the bit afterwards is quite unpleasant. You know, the bit afterwards when people are sort of reacting, um, there was one guy, uh, uh, his, uh, his name is Leo, you can yeah. look up the other one, um, and he's an ex-army officer, and I, and I heard uh, that uh, he was in the tea room, which is where we all gather, he was in the tea room uh, calling me a traitor, you see, so I texted him, I said, Leo, I just heard what you've been saying about me in the tea room. Pistols at dawn, Hampstead Heath. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
The next day... Putney Heath, wasn't it? No, Hampstead Heath. Hampstead Heath, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I think, I think it's Hampstead Heath for pistols. Castlereagh and Canning, wasn't it? Yeah? Castlereagh and Canning, down by the water, wasn't it? I oh, well, that's, that, yeah, that's, 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 that's far too intellectual for me. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about killing my enemies. <laughs> the, the, anyway, the next day... The next day, we, well, the next day we had a completely different thing, all about oligarchs and lawfare and all that sort of stuff. And I completely overshadowed myself. It was a stupid thing to do, really, but never mind. So I was running this campaign the next day on that, we, and we were just upstairs after we'd finished it. I was telling my staff what a great job they'd done, and so on. And in walks Leo with a bottle of wine, and he says, "David, my friend," he says, "heat of the moment. Will you forgive me? Will this bottle of wine help?" So there you are. <laughs> and that was that, you know, and that's behind us, you know, and we, we can talk about it. But, but the first 24 hours is not nice. That's and it. what about the bit? Because you're obviously, uh, people here may have been to that comments, it's too small for all the MPs in there, mm. so at big moments people are crammed in. You've just let a grenade off among mm. your colleagues. Mm. I remember Anna Subri telling me at times during Brexit, other Tory MPs would make throat slitting gestures at her and stuff. Was there any of that? Were people kind of looking around at you? And no, I don't think any Tories would make a throat cutting gesture to me. <laughs> Might be the other way around, but no, I don't think so. No, 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 none of that. I mean, look, there's antagonism. There's immediate antagonism, you know, and you can feel it, you know. Um, but, you know, look, if you're going to do anything in life at all, you know, sometimes you're going to have to do things which everybody disagrees with at the time. Now, look, that was the middle of January, right? And, and what did I say at the time? Why did I do this? Well, because it's going to be a death of a thousand cuts, because cabinet minister is going to be sucked into it, it's going to taint the whole government, and it's going to take until about November to get fixed. What well, now, if you ask most of, the, most of my party, let alone anybody else, they'll say, yeah, that's all right, that's all true, you know? Um, so you just have to put up with it, you know, that's, that's just part of it. And look, it isn't the only time. I mean, look, <sighs> I mean, what, let, just take this year alone. What am I doing? I'm suing the government over torture, right? So I'm, I'm in a lawsuit against my own government, and... And I forced them to change the Overseas Offences Bill by ganging up with six ex-chiefs of the defence staff and the ex-head of NATO, George Robertson, against them to force them to do it. Now, you know, all these things make you unpopular when you do them, you know. Um, but if, you don't, you know if, you, if you're not willing to do that, then what the, forgive my bad language, what the bloody hell are you doing in the job, really, you know? Why are you doing it if you're not going to change something? If all you're going to do is be part of the herd then fine, okay, maybe that's uh, a satisfying job for some people, but I think for most people, you want to try and make a difference. And that herd now mm. seems to have dwindled a little bit mm. since you made that intervention. The size of the rebellion in that uh, confidence vote shocked a lot of people. Was it uh, around the sort of numbers that you were expecting? It was a bit bigger. I was guessing, and I'm, I mean guessing, 135, and it was, what, 148. And, and I guessed that because... Uh, well, it's actually sort of boring technical thing, really, almost. You've got about ten leadership campaigns going on, right? <laughs> the, the, if you look at the bookies' odds, they range from 7 to 1 to 20 to 1, right? Or thereabouts, or 25 to 1. So let's say 4% chance of winning through to 15% chance of winning. In other words, nobody thinks they're going to win. So what do all those leadership teams do? Well, they, they, they say, no, no, don't vote against Boris, don't start the game now. So there's a, there's a sort of collective view. So I was quite surprised it got as high as 148, because I thought I could see that sort of back pressure. Um, but I think the other thing's happening is that 
people losing patience. I mean, Boris loyalists gradually are gradually feeling, well, you know, this is true and that's true and that's true and, they, and, uh, and it moves along piece by piece. Um, so that's why. Um, and, yeah, it's going to play out for the rest of the year. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to... You see, I, was in the, I went to the Wakefield by-election. One of the great pleasures of my life went to by-elections. And, um, and uh, I didn't go to Tiverton. My stomach's not strong enough. To the, the, it's a liberal campaign, you know. Um, the, the, uh, so, so I went to Wakefield, and there were people complaining about Boris, but there were also people complaining about the Tory party not being a Tory party, not being a low-tax party, not doing all the things that they were expecting, you know. So the other thing I'm trying to do is trying to get Boris actually in his year of grace, now he's got after the after confidence vote, to, uh, to try and come back to being Conservative, you know, which is, which is actually quite important, because if we don't, um, all the things happen next year are going to be terrible. Yeah. And do you think he's receptive to that? I think he's becoming receptive to it, yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think the pressures are building a bit and uh, he's becoming more receptive. And you can see it, you can see it piecemeal. But no politician, Boris is no different, no politician is good at admitting they made a mistake, you know, no matter what the mistake is. We're all terrible at it. Um, and uh, so Boris is the same. It's going to take him a bit of time to get to the, the place I want him to be, really. And what mistakes have you made? Oh, loads. <laughs> loads. What's the worst one? Oh, gosh, the worst one. Brexit! No. no. <laughs> um, I knew somebody would shout. No, <laughs> I'll pay you later, sir. It's hard to say. <laughs> um, no, no, probably not. Um, it's very hard to know. There are lots of, lots of sort of middle-ranking mistakes. I, 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 there's no huge one, you know. Um... um for, I mean, and some I don't know whether they're mistakes. For example, when Boris took over, he asked me to join his cabinet. I said no. Now, is that a mistake or not? You know, would, should, would, I, would I have made any difference? Probably not. I probably did the right thing, but, you know, I might have made a mistake there. Um, and there are a variety of other ones like that. I mean, I, when, I tell you what, a Brexit one for, the, <laughs> for my host out there. Um, when... Um, we were, we were sort of half, halfway through, no, less than that, about halfway through the first stage of the negotiation. And it was uh, about December the 3rd thereabouts, I think 2017. Sunday afternoon, dark. Um, the phone goes, it's Theresa May. And she says, David, um, I should tell you I've just been negotiating with the European Union and we've agreed a form of words which may give you some difficulties. Well, the first thing I thought was, what the bloody hell are you doing negotiating with them without telling me in the first place? You know? So that was the first thing. But then she talked about the form words, which was, you know, we've agreed full alignment between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, right? Or full alignment of regulations, which is behind all of the difficulties going on. We've got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill today and all of that. And she told me this, and I said, well, you can't do that. It's completely contrary to every speech you've made. Well, we've got to get on with it. Anyway, cut a long story short, I, to this day, don't know whether I should have stood down on the day and just said, rather than waiting a few months and try to fix it, which is what I did before I resigned, whether I should have resigned that day. That, that's, that's, that's another possible example. So, but you don't know, for, you know, I mean, what was it, was it Chow and Lai said about the, 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 you know, whether the French Revolution had been a mistake? Oh, yes. Too soon to tell, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's the same way about my career. Really. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what job did Boris offer you in his cabinet? He didn't get that far. <laughs> um, uh, what had happened, um, I, I'd, I'd gone to see him, and he'd obviously thought that I was going to talk to him about this court case that I was taking against the government for not having a tribunal on torture. That was what it was about. Um, and he said, well, about this court case? I said, I'm not here to talk about the court case. I'm going to win that. Why should I talk to you about it? You know? And he said, oh. And, and he sort of stopped. And then he sort of threw everybody out of the room. And he said to me, what do you want? I said, what do you mean, what do I want? He said, well, he said, if you hadn't have resigned, I wouldn't have resigned. And we'd still be both here talking about withdrawal agreement 13 and a half. Um, he said, so what do you want? And I said, uh, nothing you can give me. And that was the end of the conversation. That was it. What if you'd have said, Chancellor, if you'd have actually started naming departments, would that have become harder? It would have been harder. I think I would have made the same decision. I mean, I made the decision for personal reasons, because I've got a, uh, a disabled grandchild, and I was moving into Yorkshire, and we were in the middle of all that. But if he'd said, oh, will you be Chancellor, will you be Foreign Secretary, it's tougher to do, tougher to say no to. Easier to say, no, thank you, you know, to a generic thing. So right enough, in, in, in personality terms, it's harder to say no to something which is imaginable. Yes. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, so that was that. And that, that moment then, where you know, the whole checkers thing's happening, and yeah. then you resign, and then he basically follows you. Mm. How did you feel about that? Did you think, he's sort of stolen my thunder, or did you think, good, this is the desired effect? No, that's exactly what I was, want- what was after. I mean, on the day, I mean, what happened was checkers was on Friday. Uh, any of you who follow this stuff, if you're nerdish enough to follow it, you may remember that they were threatening that we couldn't have our own cars to go home. If we resigned, we couldn't have our own car to go home, you know, with a ministerial car. So we had to get the bus from Checkers or wherever, you know, and, and, I, and I was sitting there, you know, and I knew I was going to... I decided... I, in fact, I told my other ministers I was going to resign the day before. I said, but it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be at Checkers. And uh, I was sitting there, you know, once we'd gone through it all, and I, as I expected, I'd lost the vote in the Cabinet. And I thought, if I do resign today... I can't, uh, I can't take the car, but, but, but Jacob Rees-Mogg has got a Bentley, <laughs> and I was just thinking, if I call him up and say, put on a flat cap, Jacob, and drive up, <laughs> I could have had the most spectacular sort of semi-Victorian press conference <laughs> at, the, at, the gates, at the gates of Jacob, but I resisted that, I resisted that, uh, and I'd made this decision to do a sort of Francis Drake thing and have my game of bowls first, right? And so I let, I let Checkers go, went home, um, as I told my ministers already, and I was taking my, my daughter, because of the grandchild, the disabled grandchild, had not been out for 18 months, really, out of the house, and she's absolutely mad about Formula One. So I got a couple of tickets to, to Silverstone, so, so I went to pick her up, and t- t- we drive over to Silverstone, you see, and I, and I wasn't going to... The other thing was I wasn't going to announce my departure while we were still walking in front of all the paparazzi with my daughter, who's quite shy. You know, she wouldn't like all the attention. Anyway, but driving over there, while she's driving the car from Cambridgeshire to, to Silverstone, I, I, I thought, right, well, I better tell, because I'm going to re- resign at 11 o'clock at night. I won't bother you with why that, but if you, well, unless you want to know. Ask yeah. But, the, <laughs> but, the, but I was resigned at 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, and, um, and so I thought, well, I better tell the other three people in the cabinet who had supported me on the Brexit argument, right? Um, the three Brexiteers, really. Um, 
sounds rather good, like a title of a novel by whoever. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, the, the, and one of them was Esther McVeigh, uh, one of them was Penny Mordaunt, and the other one, of course, was Boris. Now, Boris was in the most difficult position because, uh, A, he's foreign secretary, um, B, he'd you know, been a lead player in Vote Leave, C, four weeks before, he had uh, not resigned over Heathrow. Remember all the stuff about lying down in front of the bulldozers at Heathrow? So instead of resigning, he went off to Afghanistan while we had the vote. And, and problematically for him, uh, problem problematically, it's not supposed to be funny, but never mind, <laughs> problematically for him, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my colleagues, um, Greg Hans, had resigned. Right, so here he was. He's rather embarrassed. The person, somebody else in the same in the same area resigns. He doesn't, and then four weeks later, I'm about to do the same to him. Right, so I thought I'll ring him up. I ring him up, and um, uh, in the in the morning, uh, and give him sort of twelve hours notice. Now this is slightly risky because he might just have preempted me and done it. But I thought no, I, you know, it's it's important for him to know because all these characters are going to get calls about half past eleven at night from the press saying, "What are you going to do?" and you know, listening. Half past 11 on Sunday night, you want to be prepared for that. And so I said, Boris, just to tell you, at 11 o'clock tonight, I'm going to tend my resignation. And he said, do you have to? I said, what? He said, do you have to? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you re resign, I'll have to resign. I like being foreign secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I'm afraid I do, actually, Boris. I've made up my mind. I've written a letter. It's all ready to go. You know. So that was that. And, um, and in fact, I was... Uh, he resigned within a day, so that's fine. But that, you know, that, that would sort of made the point. I mean, the, the, the truth was the way the policy was going was not going to work. And in fact, the, the Europeans turned it down. And much of the problem we're in now is because of the, the, the concession she made then, which she shouldn't have made. It would have been, uh, we would have got a better, a better outcome, better deal had she, uh, uh, had she uh, uh, taken a different route. So we had to force the change. So that was it. So why 11 o'clock at night? Well, well, every single, not just everybody in this audience, but every single newspaper has a particular view on Brexit, right? And if I issue a resignation, each newspaper would use it for their own particular angle. You know, the Guardian would take one view, the Telegraph would take another view, the Daily Mail, and, and so on. And I wanted to make a simple point. And the best way to do that, I decided, was to do it so late that the newspapers couldn't carry it but I could then go on to the Today programme, 10 past 8 in the morning with John Humphreys, and talk about it for 20 minutes and explain the purpose and so on. So it's just to make it a clean exercise so I got the message. Well, the, point of the, the point of resignation is not, not to resign. The point is to actually change the flow of history. And you can do that much more cleanly if you did it that way. You know, or at least that's my view. And that's what I did. So I went on the, the Today programme at 10 past 8, had 20 minutes with John Humphreys on it, and then I did Laura Koonsberg and Robert Peston, and then went home. <laughs> that was that. But that's because some people would want to cause a fuss in the papers, yeah. they'd sort of actively desire that. Perhaps yeah. some of the other people that resigned around that time might be of that um, <laughs> persuasion. In a way, there's a more res you're doing it in a, it feels like a more respectful way, even though Theresa May must have been very upset. Well, I was trying to be respectful. I mean, the thing to remember, I mean, the I felt a degree of loyalty to Theresa, um, and if you read, if you really are an anorak and go back and read the letter, you will say, I, see in the, I say in the middle of it, you know, it may be you're right, I almost hope that you are and I'm not, 
but we'll see. You know, of course, well, she wasn't. But the, the, um, uh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid evidence stands out up, unfortunately. But the, but you know, I was trying to be straightforward and respectful with her, um, because whatever you think of Theresa, whatever you think of her, uh, of her uh, approach to negotiation, she put the country first. I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think anybody would say that she didn't put the country first. She uh, was conscientious about it. She took it very seriously. Um, and although we differ, you know, uh, I respect her and, in a way, admire her for being that serious about it. You know, so that, that's the reasoning, really. And when, because she, uh, in terms of a, a former prime minister, really has embraced the House of Commons mm -hmm. more than certainly any of her predecessors in my lifetime, and has become a, a great servant in the House of Commons and rather like you, stands up, speaks her mind, is very direct and challenging the Prime Minister. You probably have more in common as your approach to public service than, than you and Boris do. Yeah, probably. I mean, um, it's a terribly serious question. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, she, she's always, I mean, for her... Public service has always been very central to her career anyway, I think. Um, uh, and her husband has supported her in that, um, which, which, quite, which is important in, in, in this context. So, yeah, I think there is a degree of similarity. I mean, uh, most MPs are unique in their, in their approach to these things. It's a function of your history, your childhood, how you got into politics, what you believe in. What shocks you've had. Oh, by the way, you should read his book. <laughs> great, it's a great book because it talks about his changes of view over time and, 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 and the shocks that caused them, you know. And we're all susceptible to that, you know. And she would have had her susceptibilities and I had mine. You know, she was Home Secretary for, was it six years? Something like that. Um, uh, and that, you could see that, you know, you could almost see the ocean liner turning, you know, uh, in terms of the effect on her. Um, other people have other uh, effects, but so so yeah, we have a commonality in terms of our belief in the public interest. But but uh, yeah, that's it. That's long enough. It's too serious. For too but long, do you, <laughs> did you feel you know? And you, I mean, I always maybe I'm the only one who gets a bit soppy, even for prime ministers that I would never have voted for. When I think of Gordon Brown leaving, I think of David Cameron, Theresa May. Their voice at some point always slightly goes usually when they talk about the country they love, and it's often usually that form of words that gets them. When you see Theresa May, a woman who, who was a dedicated public servant, emotional about having to leave the job prematurely, in her view, I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you make you feel guilty? No. <laughs> Not at all. Um, the, uh, this is a brutal career, yeah? I mean, you know, it, it, it's... It, it's it's a lot of work to get where you get to, mostly. I mean, some people are lucky. Some people have a gilded uh, ladder, um, uh, uh, particularly if they go to Eton. <laughs> but, the, uh, but generally speaking, it takes a lot, a lot of work to get there, a certain amount of courage in many cases to get there. Um, and then it goes like that. You know, it's gone. You know? um, and I have witnessed the departure of Thatcher. She, she cried when she went. Mm. I gave her a hug the day before she went. Was, uh, that was brave of me. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, the, um, Why a hug? Because she looked on the edge of tears. Um, John Major had just 
won the leadership and she was having a party basically for people in her in 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 number 10 her sort of last day really and i was talking about party unity because the thing was major was seen as the person to bring the party together it didn't last of course after a few years but that was the point and i said um uh, at least we're going to get unity margaret and she said, unity's only worthwhile if it's in the right cause, right? And at that point, uh, uh, she welled up slightly, and that's heads the hug. You know? But, um, gosh, you're the first audience I've ever told that. My wife's going to kill me now. Um, the, uh, the, um, so I saw her go. Um, Blair was interesting when he went because um, he didn't really want to go. I know, and I, I, I talked to Blair. The, it's a longer story. I'll come back to it. But no, it's great. I talked to Blair the day after he went. Um, this is a terribly long. This is a sentimental story. Right? Oh, I'm going to cry. Yeah, well. You might have to hug me in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm very eclectic, <laughs> <laughs> inclusive. Um, the, there's a guy called Eric Forth. Most of you would not have heard of him. He was a really fantastic parliamentarian, a Scot from Glasgow, very tough, very right wing. You'd have hated him. Very, very <laughs> right wing, right? Uh, great pal of mine uh, and a fantastic parliamentarian. He absolutely, you know, he had the house at his fingertips. And everybody was slightly fearful, re respectful of him, whatever, on all sides. And he was dying. He's dying of cancer, right? And. Um, I was talking to his wife and said, well, what can we do? Can we do it? Can, you know, can I do anything to help sort of thing? And her words were, were say, well, um, Eric had always wanted to be a knight of the realm, to be Sir Eric, right? He'd come from a, a tenement in Glasgow, a really sort of, you know, poor working class. And, um, and, uh, and he wanted to be a knight. And I said, oh, right. And, she said, and then she just turned to me, looked at me straight in the eye and she said, you network with God, you fix it. And that's all I I network with God, and who's this? Uh, anyway, so I, I thought, okay. Now that week, I had just, I'd just been party, if that's the right word, to dispatching Charles Clark as Home Secretary. I was the Shadow Home Secretary. We, I just got rid of David Blunkett the year before, and I now just got rid of Clark after a sort of 13 week campaign. And then John Reid came in. And John Reid came in, yeah. But anyway, so. That's what's happened in the week before. So on the Sunday, I ring up Downing Street to talk to Blair. And they say, oh, he's, he's, uh, he's at Checkers. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he's at Checkers. I said, well, can you put me through to the garden room girls? These are the, the, the secretaries who go down to, to work at Checkers. Um, and they did. And I've got through. And I said, can I speak to the Prime Minister, please? And, uh, and she said, well, he's tied up at the moment. Um, Gordon was really going to great lengths. Yeah. <laughs> I said tied up, not nailed down. <laughs> and, uh, and he's tied up at the moment. I said, well, look, tell him it's urgent but unimportant. I thought that gets attention. You know? <laughs> what the hell's urgent but unimportant? And she came back and she said, we'll call you back at six o'clock. So I'm sitting in my flat at six o'clock on the dock, you know, on the second of six, always away with number 10. They always call you on the microsecond of the hour. Um, and uh, he comes on, and I said, well, Prime Minister, I, I should just explain, um, 
I want to ask you a favour. I have an ulterior motive. And I know at this moment in time, I'm the last person in the world you want to do a favour to. And he giggled the way that Blair does. and said, oh dear, David. He said, do it, just do it your job. Altogether too well, if I may say so. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so and I explained about, I explained about Eric. And he said, well, can it wait till Christmas? Because, you know, this is sort of middle of the year. Because um, uh, the, the honours list has just gone in. I said, no, he's probably not going to last six weeks, let alone six months. So I said, you want me to call Tony Newton, who's the head of the honours, the lord at the head of the... And he said, no, no, no. And he said, I'll talk to Gus, Gus O'Donnell, who's the cabinet secretary. Whose initials are God. God. I talk to God. Yeah, you got, you've taken the bloody punchline. Oh, no! <laughs> no, 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 no! I'm so sorry! Anyway, never I mind. I thought I was being clever. Never mind. I've ruined it. Never go on with a comedian, right? Never go on. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so, so, so... I'm so sorry. <laughs> so anyway, on Monday, God calls me up, right? <laughs> so God calls me up and he says, he say, he, and we have the same conversation. And he said, let me see what I can do. On Wednesday, we're going to have the, the last dinner of Conservative Way Forward, which is an organisation created partly by Eric Forth to support Margaret Thatcher. And this is the last major public speech she ever makes. She's, you know, she's got her illness, and, and so this is the last one she makes. Anyway, so I, I'm, I'm just getting ready, trying to do up my bow tie, and I'm absolutely bloody useless doing up a black bow tie. And I so I can't do it, I'm struggling with it. And the phone goes... Um, I pick it up, and it's uh, God again. And he says, um, he says uh, it's done. Eric will be in the, in the, in the birthday honours list, I think it was. So fine. So I then ring his wife, and I say, um, uh, he's going he's gonna to get it. Can you, you know, it's up to you. You can tell him or not. If you think it'll make him last longer, tell him. So she goes to hospital and she tells him, and he roars with laughter and says, typical bloody Tory party, give me nothing all my life until I'm shuffling off this mortal coil and now they give me something. <laughs> very Eric, very Eric. Anyway, <laughs> so I go off to the function, see her, come, and come back, 11, uh, at the end of it, uh, come back, about 11.30, phone goes, it's Carol, the wife. Uh, he died an hour ago. All right? So there we are. We, the nighthood was arranged, but he died. Uh, and I see Blair about two weeks later, no, a week later, um, and he just looks at me and goes, uh, that's that. Anyway, come back to the day he resigned. Yeah. He goes up back up to Sedgefield, to the Working Men's Club, or wherever it is they have the, the, the thing where he's going to address people. And I ring up, and he's just gone into the meeting, so I can't get him. So I said, well, tell him I called. Um, and the, the, next, so that was that. the next morning, the Friday morning, uh, he calls me back. Uh, and I just said, I said, I, said God, I called him Tony, which is cheeky, but you know, he wasn't Prime Minister anymore. <laughs> and I said, Tony, I just want to say, you know, for all the differences we had in politics, you know, when it came down to it, you did the right thing. On that, if nothing else, you did the right thing. And that's that. So that's what I remember about Blair's resignation. Oh, um, my. So, so that's, that's my sentimental bit there. So Blair, Gordon, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know he was obviously not happy to go. Uh, David Cameron, the um, victim of his own victim of his own uh, circumstances, really. He created that, didn't need to. Um, uh, and and Theresa uh, was sorry to go. Of course she was, and I was sorry too. But 
a necessary part of history, you know, that we occasionally get impaled in our own actions, including myself. So, uh, <laughs> and now, Boris Johnson, so how long do you think he's got left? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, the, 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 it's quite difficult to do this properly, and I mean properly, because people in my position shouldn't second-guess the Privileges Committee. But if the Privileges Committee goes through all the process and comes to the conclusion that he knowingly misled the House, then that's a resignation offence. And my hunch is they'll come to the conclusion, whichever way they drop, um, in about November, October, November uh, of this year. But just if you work it out, you know, they've got to have all the witnesses, they've got to interview Boris, got to interview Carrie, got to interview Sue Gray, got to go through all the WhatsApp messages and all those things. Uh, you know, as the summer's reading in its own right, the, you've got to go through. You, they, of course, there are there are parties that have not been covered by the various investigations, the so-called ABBA party, I think I'm told. Um, uh, of such great things, great states are driven. Yeah, um, and and the uh, and the, the so I think late October, uh, November, and then there'll be a decision point. And if the decision points against the Prime Minister, then I think he'll go. I can't, forgive me, but I'm not going to prejudge what they're going to say. But, but what if he says, what if everyone says, this is terrible for him, he's got to go, and he says, actually, it's not. I'm not going. I disagree. I take a, you know, I take a different view. I, I, I come on, you, 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 I totally disagree with the report. I, I'm compelled to resist. In a port that I think is an injustice, and I, and I think actually I totally disagree. So I'm not, I'm not going to resign. In, can you, one, imagine him doing that? <laughs> and two, if he says I'm not going, what happens then? Well, I think my colleagues, various groups of them, are creating mixtures of guillotines, oubliettes, <laughs> uh, and, and other mechanisms. You know, uh, I mean, there's a 22 committee. Uh, election coming up, in which some people are running on them the, for a mandate of change the rules to allow us to, because at the moment the rules say, you know, we, we've had a confidence vote and there's now 12 months until the next one. I happen to think you shouldn't change that rule because the, any future Prime Minister has got to look over, I mean, the next Prime Minister, if it's not Boris, is going to have to deal with stagflation. That means really tough decisions. Interest rates going up and all the rest of it, you know. Um, can they do that, looking over their shoulder, the prospect of, a, of a, a, re a new confidence vote every day? So, but some are doing that, and others are planning other things, I'm sure. Um, uh, so I think there will be a variety of mechanisms available, both to the House of Commons and to the Tory party, to make a decision. But you see, the, the, the thing about knowingly mislead the House is the ministerial code is clear. That's a resignation offence. That's a resignation offence. Um, so I, I think it, it, if that's the conclusion they come to, it'd be very, even Boris, even Boris, the greased piglet would have great trouble. <laughs> even, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is Boris Johnson and it's not it, it, entirely inconceivable that he would find a, a way to try and wriggle off that hook. Would you, like a, would you like a conditional bet? Yes. The conditional bet is if they find, knowingly misled the House, yeah. he's gone. £100. I mean, I think I do agree with you. I'm just exploring the alternative. So <laughs> it's, it's always the best way to test somebody's theory. <laughs> OK. 
100 quid. 100 quid. It's from one oral contract. Oh, God. Do you want it now? Or? March me to a cash machine and take it out. I've just lost 100 pounds. This is why you're a conservative and I'm not. This is why I come on your show. <laughs> Fuck, that's just, you just made me... Oh. I mean, if you just said like... I only got 100 pounds last time as well. I mean. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just thinking about Boris Johnson then and his character, and obviously you, you've served in the cabinet with him, you've campaigned alongside him, you've known him for a very long time. From the outside, this all looked inevitable. That as a critic of Boris Johnson, I'd have looked at this and gone, he was always going to behave like this in office. This was the path it was always going to take. Would you agree with that? Or is there another way this could have gone? No, I mean, part of the, part of the problem was that we had the mixture of both Brexit and COVID at the same time, right? And COVID was, it was completely unprecedented. Now, one of the things that means is that Whitehall has got no experience, no reflexes, no systems in place that will deal with it. And, and so you're left with ministers making it up as they go along. Now, you might think they do it all the time, but the, the, the simple truth is that they don't. I mean, most, most um, political outcomes are a mixture of the manifesto, Whitehall sort of controlling it and moderating it and mitigating it and so on, plus the personality of individual ministers. Here, you had this enormous crisis, I mean, bigger than anything except a major war, right? Anything except a major war. Uh, and it had implications that the Treasury couldn't cope with. I mean, the Treasury got all its numbers wrong. The Bank of England got all its numbers wrong, you know, as a result of COVID. And, um, and so you had that. And the normal disciplines went too. Um, Back on March 23rd, 2020, um, we, which was the day of the, 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 the lockdown, really, the, the government moved a um, coronavirus emergency bill. And I, I think I was the only person, I may not have been, but I think I was the only person who objected to the fact we had this bill. We didn't have a chance to amend it after six months. I mean, there was going to be a... I mean, we, we did manage to force a, a sunset clause where they re revamp it, but it was one where you, it was a rubber stamp. You said yes or no, and in the middle of COVID, you're not going to stop the COVID emergency bill. Um, and the Labour Party, frankly, missed a trick, and as they recognised immediately, oh, they told me, they said we didn't think of it. Um, so what that did was it took a very important check away from the government. 
You know, the government, um, if you're a government minister and you've got a new policy to announce, the thing that makes you do your homework is going to the House of Commons to explain it to a perhaps less than credulous audience in the House. I mean, at the very least, the opposition are going to try and tear it apart, but also some of your own people will say that's not good and, and so on. And it's a really important controlling factor in how we run our country. That's why, that's why we're a big, successful country, you know, it's primarily the operation of our democracy. And it's been getting weaker over the years anyway for a variety of reasons. But, um, but it was completely depleted. So for the next, you add the COVID emergency legislation, which allowed ministers to make decisions really without coming to Parliament at all. And then when it did come to Parliament, because um, we, we were all sent home uh, under the COVID arrangements, I mean, I came back every week, but most of my colleagues were talking over a screen. And yet there's no way, you know, think of what, I mean, it's a bad example, but think of how, um, Prime Minister's questions look and all the sort of tumult and the furor and so on and the pressure involved in that. And then think of a parish council meeting in a barn, which is basically how the House of Commons was, with a few screens around so people can come in from Worthington or Barnsley or wherever or, or Halterbrice, you know. And um, there's no test of a minister. He turns up, he reads out his stuff, he sits down, he reads out... You know, it, 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 there's no test. And so the normal pressures that make government work are just gone. Just gone. Uh, and now, to come back to your point about Boris, this plays to the worst parts of Boris's count, uh, character. I mean, Boris's got, got virtues and vices, like all of us, right? And he's, he, you know, he, he, can, he can engage people, he can, uh, he can turn people's opinions from one end of the spectrum to the other. There's lots of things he's good at. But overwhelming sense of self-discipline is not one of them. Um, and, and, you know, and basically the whole government had the sense of self-discipline relaxed. You know? um, and so, so I think it was almost the worst set of circumstances really for him. You know, I think if it had simply been, you know, get Brexit done yeah, and then go on to you know, deliver a low-tax economy under normal circumstances and deregulate and look for free trade agreements and so on. Instead, you had this great, walloping great crisis right through the middle of it. Uh, and, and part of the reaction to the crisis took away the natural reflexes of the British state. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, and, you know, it's often the case. It's often the case that when prime ministers either fail or, or their careers end, it's because the circumstances don't fit them or what, what it is that they bring to it, you know. Um, I mean, Cameron, I mean, or Theresa May, you know, she, she, she tried her best, but she was not equipped for what she was trying to do. Cameron, you know, again, character, character is destiny in these things, you know, um, uh, and, and so on, you know. Thatcher herself, you know, uh, the, the point that Thatcher went, um, uh, another good book's worth reading is Charles Moore's biography of Thatcher, and you read it and you realise actually that her departure was probably, I mean I was, I was a big Thatcher fan, I didn't want her to go, but you, when you read about it in detail you think probably the departure was inevitable because circumstances had changed enough, she'd, she'd carried out the revolution she had done and it was probably time. You know, and, and it's just that, that character ceases to match circumstance and bang it's over. But his character is... <laughs> For a lot of people, 
inside and outside of his party has always been an issue that he feels like a fundamentally unserious individual that was never going to dispatch his duties in the office of Prime Minister in the same way that people to the left or to the right of him would have done. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, uh, I think that had we had, as I, what I've described, as the sort of conventional outcome, what we were expecting, I mean, nobody forecast COVID. You know, I didn't forecast COVID. I mean, I was, um, uh, the, the, then I think it would have been very different, a very different game. And the, the, best, the best way to, to, to say it really is, is if, if you look back at Boris as mayor, and he surrounded himself with some very good people, and he basically became the mouthpiece of London. He became the voice, you know, the, the Olympics and all the other things. Now, now, right enough, he takes credit for things he didn't do. All right, you know, the, we all do that, you know. Uh, I plead guilty. You know. um, uh, but the, but He'd never do that. Hmm? <laughs> well, plead guilty. That's true. <laughs> but the... Um, yeah, you never want to be Boris's defence lawyer, would you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the but uh, but you know he did a good job there, and he got he got elected twice, you know. Um, and the first time when he was our mayoral candidate, he'd just been on my home affairs team, and I really didn't think he was going to win, but he did. And then he did a better job than I thought, and carried on and won again, did a better job than I thought, and he did it because he put very very good people around him, and then let them get on with it, and then he became the mouthpiece. That hasn't happened in all of this, I don't think. I mean, the people, the people in the cabinet have not, as, just as much as Boris, have had difficulty coping with the, the COVID circumstances. It's not their fault. You know, they, 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 they weren't all trained in microbiology and, and all the rest of it, um, uh, let alone the sort of economics we're going through at the moment, which is just mind-blowingly different from anything else. Um, so, so, no, I don't think it's inevitable at all. I think, I think under a different set of circumstances, it could have been very different for him. And, and would you have ever characterised yourself as friends? Like during Brexit, were you mates, or have you always just agreed on certain issues and we campaigned were al- We were allies. We were allies. Um, uh, I think I'm quite difficult to cope with if you're a public school boy. Um, Andrew Mitchell once said to me, who is a public school boy, he said, you know, the Etonians hate you. And they hate you because you're just as cocky as they are, but you didn't pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, you know, so, so we're, we're, not, we're not mates, but we're allies, you know. Um, sometimes quite distant allies. I mean, and the, the, I didn't like the Vote Leave campaign, you see. I, uh, there were bits of it I didn't like the bus. <laughs> and so I, I did my own separate exercise. Um, and uh, but that's that's just that's just me. So was it? What wasn't it you liked about the vote leave? I obviously you mentioned the bus. Was it the tone of that campaign? Was it the kind of Cummings element? Well, Cummings, of course, is not another friend of mine. Um, given what he's had to say in the past. Um, well, I just didn't like. It. I just didn't think. I wa- I wanted to talk about um, democracy. You know, I mean, the reason. Um, just so people understand, I mean, um, my conversion from strong Eurosceptic, which I was for all my adult life, but that which, by which I mean critical of the institutions of Europe, but, but saying stay in and try and do our best, right? 
uh, to Brexiteer happened at the time of the Eurozone crisis, 2011-12, I think it was, when with the way they treated Greece, I don't know if you remember, but basically Greece was introduced to the Eurozone by a series of frauds, uh, in essence. Uh, they rigged the national accounts, various merchant banks were involved in different special loan mechanisms and so on. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that. Um, you can get the lawsuit. <laughs> and that's 100 quid won't cover it. And they, and the, um, they, they, they sort of rigged the, the outcome. Uh, and the European Union knew the outcome was being rigged. They knew it was being rigged. They all knew what was going on. And yet they let it go because they wanted everybody in the, in the Eurozone. And uh, the result of that, of course, is when pressure came on the, Euro the Eurozone, which incidentally is doing again now, by the way, uh, if I talk about that again, but, but pressure came on the Eurozone, the, the, uh, the fringe countries, that's the wrong word, but basically the Mediterranean, that's Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Ireland, it's all running outside, all came under economic pressure, right? Greece was the worst. And the way the, uh, the, the Europeans treated Greece, in my view, was just plainly immoral. 25% uh, cut in the, in the economy, uh, the health service, they were shutting hospitals, hundreds of thousands of people were leaving, not just Greece, they were leaving other um, romance countries as well. Um, and it was just brutally ruthless, brutally ruthless. And at that point, I decided that if, a, if this organisation is so undemocratic that that could happen, that was the point which I became Brexit here. Um, so those were the reasons. And, and so when I was going around the country, I was talking about democratic accountability, responsibility. I mean, I used to say, if we did that to Lancashire, say, the government would fall, you know. And I speak as a Yorkshireman, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but the government would fall if, you, you know, if we, one part of the country was treated in that way. And from a European point of view, that's what Greece was like. So, so I, I wanted to make my own arguments. That was it, really. Um, and so we, were sort of, we ran in different orbits. So then you find yourself as Brexit secretary. Yeah, to my shock. <laughs> so Theresa May makes Boris Johnson foreign secretary, you secretary of Brexit in the European Union, mm. new department, and then Liam Fox gets trade it, secretary. Trade yeah. secretary. Some people looked at that and said, that's genius on her part. She's playing the three of you off against each other. Do you think that's what she was doing? And was that how it felt? No, I don't, actually. Um... No, I mean, uh, we all, we, I mean, to come back to your point, we all got on well, we all were allies. Um, I mean, bear in mind there were other Brexiteers in cabinet, there was Michael Gove, uh, as I said, there was um, Penny Morden, there was um, Esther McVeigh, uh, uh, and some who were sort of more middling, but like Chris Grayling, people like that, um, Andrea Ledson. Ledson. Uh, so, so the group, group, group of group of them in different ways. So, so no, I mean, I was I was surprised um, uh, to be called. I mean, on the evening, well, on the day of her doing her cabinet and taking office, was the day of the Chilcot report. Right now, I was a leading light in representing the families of the soldiers who died in the Iraq War, along with Mike Rose, General Mike Rose, and. And so I was very, very busy on all of that. Um, and we'd had the Chilcot Report debate, and I'd come over to meet uh, my ex-chief of staff who'd come in for a drink, a lady called um, 
Renata, and um, we're sitting in the in the uh, outside the restaurant in in the Portcullis House, in the House of Commons, and I was drinking a glass of wine, just like today. And um, Renata says to me, "If you follow social media, I never turn it on." Um, <laughs> um, she said, um, "People are saying you're in number ten. Twitter's saying you're in number ten." So well, I'm obviously not, am I? And they ignored it, another 10 minutes. Twitter's still saying you're in number 10. They said, look, take a, take a photograph of me sitting here with this glass of wine in my hand and say he's not in number 10, you know? So she does this, 20 minutes later, they're still saying you're in number 10. I suddenly realised I switched my phone off. So I get my phone out, switch it on, and there's a great stream of text messages um, so saying, uh, please call Switch. Switch is what the... Uh, telephone exchange in number 10 call themselves uh, and um, so all right so I call up switch I said David Davis they said, oh the Prime Minister would like to see you uh, I said and he said can you be here at half past seven I'm over to over the road I'll be there in five minutes if you want no no half past seven is fine okay so I go over and I get summoned in and I'm sort of, by now I sort of dawn on me what's coming and she says um uh, David, I'd like you to be Secretary of State uh, for a new department. We're not quite sure whether to call it the Department of Leaving the European Union or the Department of Exiting the European Union. So with a big grin on my face, I said, well, Department for Exiting, obviously. Then we can call it Department X. <laughs> Completely po-faced, no smile at all. <laughs> no humour. You know. OK, all right. So, so... How much wine did you have at this point? <laughs> <laughs> One glass of <laughs> No, my sense of humour is always bad. Don't pay no attention. The wine makes no difference. And the, and uh, so I then go out, and my permanent secretary at the time meets me, a man called Oliver Robbins, right? And he says, um, "Could you walk very slowly to the front door, and then very slowly down Downing Street to number nine, which is where our office is going to be? I'm going to be in nine Downing Street." You see. I said, why? He said, because I'm going to be running round all of, the, all of the, the, the sort of back doors of, of number 10 to get to 9 Downing Street so I can open the door for you. Okay, all right, we'll go through the charade. So I walk down Downing Street because all, all the photographs are being taken. And we get there, he lets me in, and we sit down and we start talking. And he says, my, my name's Oliver Robbins, and I'm, I'm your permanent secretary. And I said, Oliver Robbins? Were you the legal counsel for MI5 in the Binyar Mohammed torture case. <laughs> and his face fell, because <laughs> he was. <laughs> and because he didn't know that I would have read the torture case, because <laughs> one of my campaigns was against the use of torture. Uh, and of course, <laughs> he'd come from there to be my permanent secretary. He, me, Mr. Anti-Torture, and him, Mr. Explain Torture. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! And then he says, "Then he says to me, because you're wearing an Apple Watch." Then he says to me, "He says, um, he said, oh, by the way, uh, Secretary says uh, on that point, he said, every intelligence agency in the world will now have an interest in you." And I said, well, "What do you mean, every? I mean, obviously the, obviously the Europeans, the Germans, and the French and the Belgians." He said, "No, no, everybody." I said, "What? The Chinese? Yeah, absolutely, and the Russians, and the Americans." In fact, he said, "And the Americans," <laughs> and, and and he said. Uh, and he looked at my wrist, and I was wearing an Apple Watch, and you have to get rid of that, <laughs> because, because it's got a microphone in it. So you, they can actually log on and listen to all your meetings. Yeah. They probably are now. I mean, so Putin's having a great laugh at this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, so... So, so these so, aren't safe. They're not safe, no, no. 
You, you cannot serve at the senior levels of the British government wearing that thing. Well, you couldn't then. Whether they've upgraded it since, I don't know. But uh, yeah. it's a microphone in it and uh, a transmitter. And what else would you want? I mean, yeah. That's incredible. It's what, whoever. Well, and would yeah. that go for all smartwatches? No, that's a smartwatch. It's got no mic in it. So what brand's that? Hmm? It's a Garmin. This is not an advertising. <laughs> it's, 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 this, is, this is so I can run, you know. So it's like, as, as I was showing you earlier, I've come up 29 floors today I said, uh, and, uh, and walked 10,000 steps. There. I mean, I did say it to you backstage, I, I think you look younger than the last time I saw you, and that was about seven years ago. Ah, uh, well, you should see the person in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie Robbins. Well, it's yeah, Ollie Robbins. <laughs> yeah, chained down, nailed down <laughs> by Gordon Brown. The, uh, the, um, it's an enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation. It's, it's not called torture, it's enhanced interrogation. <laughs> The, uh, well, I run between 15 and 25 miles a week. Uh, I exercise most days, you've heard. When I get up, I get on the bicycle. Um, mostly that, you know. Uh, that was what I was going to ask you about Brexit. The negotiations themselves, which you and Michelle Barnier. Mm. How did it feel to be in the middle of that? Did you enjoy it? Did you relish it? And how did you feel about the media coverage and how it's portrayed here? Well... Well, of course, I mean, look, the thing, the thing about Brexit, <clears throat> and it's not the only subject today where this is true, is Britain and most countries in the world uh, have got two echo chambers which don't talk to each other. You know, they've got the Leavers and the Remainers, and they tend not to talk to each other. Um, and it's one of these things, in most of politics, if you are in the middle range, that's the place where most people are. Uh, and so you'll get most support. So the centre ground has long been where most of British politics operated. If you're in a centre ground on Brexit, if you're trying to make a conditional case and this has gone right and this has gone wrong, everybody attacks you <laughs> from both sides. So, so you've got that for, for a start. Um, the, the, the actual negotiation, well, remember I've known Barnier for 30 years. Uh, we're sort of, sort of old mates, actually. I mean, we, we got on quite well. Um, uh, we've, got a, we've got a lunch date when he comes to Britain next. Um, uh, but to some Maybe extent... Maybe a hundred quid towards that from my wallet, probably. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the wine. Well, uh, that, will, uh, that will buy about one glass of uh, Michel's favourite wine. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, the, um, uh, but what... They, they'd, done a, uh, they'd done one thing very badly wrong. Um, while, while the election was taking... Or the general election was taking place, um, Robbins and Theresa had basically agreed the sequencing... Now, this is incredibly important negotiation because what we should have said is, as they typically do in Europe, nothing's agreed till everything's agreed, you see. And on that basis, I'd agreed that, the, that we paid them some money because you know, then we wouldn't get, they wouldn't get the deal. We wouldn't, they wouldn't get the money until we got the deal, that sort of thing. They blew all that by, by, by agreeing the sequencing wrongly. So that messed it up a bit. Um, but never mind, uh, we, we made reasonable progress on the money that, that summer. Um, they wanted 100, then we ended up arguing about 40. Um, the, uh, and it was making quite good progress until the account I gave you of, of making the mistake on the, on the Irish settlement. Um, uh, because it, the point was, we could have done something better than that using the, the current, in, the existing in, invisible border. Because although we were both in the European Union at that point in time, there were real differences, between, uh, different VAT rates, different tax rates, different structures, north and south, which we managed perfectly well. 
and we could have done the same. But anyway, so they blew it. So the so from that point of view, I was sort of slightly irritated because I was running a policy which was not 100. Well, put it mildly, not 100% mine. But I just took the view that nevertheless, uh, it's my job to try and make what you created work. Um, so it's quite hard work, um, and I spent quite a lot of time trying to bend the policy back to, to where I thought it should be. Um, that was the hardest work. Um, but uh, these things, I mean, look, firstly, it's a privilege to do it. I understand that. Um, secondly, uh, you are trying to represent your country and do the best you can for the country. Um, uh, and you expect that to be hard work. You know, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not in this for a sort of, you know, idle holiday, you know, uh, bussing over to Brussels and Strasbourg from time to time. Um, so it's quite, quite hard from that point of view. But you know, it's uh, 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 that was it. You know, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it's. You know, I don't regret any of that. You know, any, any, any of that aspect of it. There was that photo. I think from the first day where Barney has got a big ring bun in front of him and you've got nothing in front of you. There. Was, you know, obviously the Remainers on my timeline were going, well, this is just typical, you know, the Europeans are prepared and we're not, we're just sat there with nothing in front of us. Was all, that All the alternative approaches, I've got a memory and a brain and Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think he was using a bit of theatre there? Yes, of course. Of course it was. Uh, of course it was. I mean, look, and, and that's part of the game. I mean, understand that. You mustn't, you mustn't hold this against them. I mean, this, this, they're, they're playing a game. And, and of course, and I talked about echo chambers. Brussels is the, the echo chamber to end all echo chambers. There's only one truth in Brussels. Only one truth. Uh, and of course they're playing a game. And, of course, they played into a sort of a, a British weakness because if, if you're in cabinet, let's say, and the photographers come and take a picture, you all take your papers off the table and put them in the... Because you don't want to, you know... What, what's, the most, what's the most embarrassing thing when people walk down Downing Street? They walk down with an open folder, yeah? You know? So you just clear the table, and that's what we do. And so I'm used to you know, having a photograph taken, do that, and then we get the papers out afterwards. Although, to be frank... Most of these things were not so complicated. You needed a heap of papers. Um, you know, we knew on any given day we're negotiating on maybe three, four, five subjects. If you can't keep that in your head, you shouldn't be negotiating. You really shouldn't. You know, um, it's not that hard. You know. So yeah, he played it. He played a, a clever trick. Fine. You know, yeah. You got. You know, look. This is politics. You know, it's basically. It's, it's the modern equivalent, it's the intellectual equivalent of prize fighting. If you don't get a bruise or two, then what do you expect? You know? yeah. Yeah. There's that great Mike Tyson quote about having a game plan in boxing. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Mm. A good life lesson as well, I guess. Um, but uh, let's open up the floor to some questions. Uh, if you indicate very clearly, I'll have to repeat the question for the uh, podcast. And if I can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, I'd be very grateful. Yes, the first one right at the back there. Uh, to David Davis. Um, obviously, I think we know that he, uh, Boris is a busted flush. Um, who would you say in the party could maybe pick up the slack after and to Matt, why have you not drank any wine? <laughs> okay, so um, to David, Boris is a busted flush. Who should re uh, replace him? For me, why am I not drinking any wine? Um, You've got the more interesting question. You go first. Okay. Um, I uh, try not to drink too often. <laughs> and when I'm working, I, I don't drink. Because I'm like, if I start drinking... You've nearly finished now. You can have a little one. Can I? Yeah. 
I'm so easily led, man. I'm You're so allowed. weak. Can I? A voice all the time. Uh, shall I? I'm really trying to look after my weight. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I've got gout. Um, and I'm well, 39. Look, I mean, you know, wasn't he just saying I look younger than last time? Come on, I'm drinking it. You drink something. Yeah, but it's I don't want my foot to explode. It's good for you. Um, <laughs> anyway, let me answer my question. Is it good what for you? me, really? It's good for you, absolutely. I'll have a little drop. Oh, no. <laughs> the doctor says so, yes. Um, Your doctor? No. Okay. <laughs> the... Um, it's difficult to answer the question. I was sort of hoping it would answer itself. bullied into drinking this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's only cost you 100 quid, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> the, it's, very, it's very hard to answer. I was sort of hoping it would answer itself two weeks ago because I was sort of hoping that somebody in the Cabinet would resign on the day of the confidence vote because you know, if, if, such, if somebody had done that, then that person would have been the instant favourite because they would have shown some courage and some integrity and so on, and they didn't. So I'm a bit sort of flummoxed, frankly, um, and this won't resolve, this issue won't resolve itself, I think, until about November, if then. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, and, and leadership contests, as I know to my cost, can go through complete 180-degree revolutions in one month, let alone four or five months. So I'm just watching carefully to see who shows some integrity, who shows some courage, and who shows some conservatism, really. Those are, those are my three C's, my three tests. Um, uh, oh, integrity is not a C, is it? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I'm, so I'm afraid it's a non-answer, but, but I'm no still waiting. Hmm? No, because no, nobody's, nobody's stood out yet. Let me put a name to you. Majid Doris. Steady <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's put that name first. Nadine Doris. For, for what post? Prime Minister. Oh. Hmm. Interesting thought. Interesting thought. The name I was going to put to you, and this is, I'm not the first person to say this, and this person has been talked of as a unity candidate of great experience, David Davis. <laughs> he was thinking of a bloody idiot, really. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> let, let me, let, look. Let me, let, me, let me give you a, a, it's, it's a great book he's written, but he's one tip that's not in there, and it's this. Don't judge politicians by what they say, judge them by what they do. Right? Now, what have I done in the last year? What have I done? I've sued the government. Right? <laughs> I've overturned one of their bills. Right? I've called out the Prime Minister. This is not the way to make yourself popular with the backbenchers, <laughs> and they're the ones who vote on this. Right? So... So it's, 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 I've already disqualified myself, as simple as I put it. But to, to borrow an analogy, if the ball came free at the back of the scrum, <laughs> would you pick it up? I'm not an old Etonian. I don't use such an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's take another question from the audience. Uh, yes, just over there. Uh, yeah, um, you, you said earlier that um, uh, Theresa May conceded something in the Brexit negotiations, and that partly led to the current deal we've mm. got. I was wondering what that concession was. Yeah. And also, sorry. Go on. How can that be the case, given a new prime minister came in with a blank slate and got his own deal? Well, the the the, the, the first concession the concession for sorry, I missed that last line. Which is working out very well. <laughs> the the the, um, the 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 first concession was the f quotes the exact words were full alignment of regulations in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Right now. That means that, in effect, Northern Irish 
the Northern Irish economy, it has to basically be under European rule. That, that was, the, that was the, in essence, the issue. And everything that's transpired right up until today, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is going through the House today. I'm abstaining on it because I'm undecided yet as to what the final thing will look like, um, the, uh, is, is, is where it came from. Now, you, I think even Boris would say to you that he probably decided too quickly on the, uh, on the, the final form of the agreement. I think he said that in the last few days, actually. Um, which we which we then took into the election. Now, this is this is a real rough and ready call. Uh, was it better to deliver Brexit in a not perfect form, you know, which is what he's done, you know, and then try and fix it afterwards, or would it have been better to hold off? You know, your 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 call as good as anybody's, but that's that's the genesis of it, and it will it will lead to. My hunch is of two or three years more negotiation on this to, to, to get it right. Yeah. So Brexit hasn't got done? Hasn't completed, no. no, no. Not completed, not yet. I mean, until, until we've resolved the Northern Irish issue, it won't, it won't be completed. No. People's concern with Northern Ireland, obviously, is the history of Northern Ireland, yeah. the tensions it recreates, the politics of Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. now changing for the first time, the nationalists have won a majority. Yeah. Without Brexit, do you think Sinn Féin would have won those elections? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, uh, in Northern Irish politics in that respect, but the, um, I don't think it would have changed it much, to be honest. Um, the, the interesting thing is to see how robust the Northern Ireland the, uh, Good Friday Agreement is. And a few weeks ago, uh, Coveney, the uh, Irish... Foreign Secretary um, suddenly started talking about the majority of MLAs, the majority of Stormont members, were in favour of uh, what the Europeans want to do as against what we want to do. Uh, and he forgot that the fundamental tenet of the Good Friday Agreement is that you have to respect the minority as much as the majority. And, that, you know, and that's true whether the minority is nationalist as it used to be or unionist as, as it is now uh, and they've got to find a way and we've got not they we've got to find a way through which manages to respect most both both communities and we will I mean you know, it's doable a lot of these of the issues we face are actually quite artificial issues in truth I mean let me give you an example one of the proposals which I'm sure will get accepted is at some point is that we should have a green channel for goods going from the mainland UK to uh, to Northern Ireland, which is just for use in Northern Ireland, to sell in Sainsbury's or whatever. Um, now at the moment that doesn't see so we've got this sort of regulatory uh, um, burden um, at the moment. Um, that that's almost certain to go through, and then a red channel for things that will go south. Um, and there'll be a variety of other things. Things like, I mean, I want one of the things I want to see in in UK mainland UK politics is I want to see the VAT on fuel removed completely, all fuels, right? Um, now, if we do that here, we'll want to do that in Northern Ireland, and there will be pressure from all communities in Northern Ireland to get the cost of fuel cut, you know? So there'll be a, the, the, this is going to be a, a much more fluid game, I think, than people, people realise. Okay. Uh, one last question. Uh, all men so far, so if, uh, is there any... Yes, right in the middle there, perfect. Oh, 
It's not a question, actually. It's just a comment, Mr. Davis. Do you do you know who I am? Oh my God! <laughs> I can't say it was I, a question. I can't see you. So. No, you, you don't know who I am, but I I met you in 1994. Mm -hmm. and is, <laughs> is this going to be embarrassing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm teasing you, don't worry. It was in 1994, and you were with John Major, and I was the first local authority person in the country to win a charter mark for disabled, oh, children, wow. for right. disabled children's services. Yeah. And we were at a big event, and of course it was before mobile phones, etc., etc. and my colleague had a phone, and I passed the phone, uh, sorry, my colleague had a camera, and I passed the camera to you, and I said, would you take a photograph of me with John Major, the Prime Minister? And you said to me, do you know who I am? <laughs> it was embarrassing. What are you talking about? <laughs> wow. I have to say, I have to say, Mr. Davis, you, are, you weren't asking that with any sense of pomposity. You were asking it with a complete sense of, I'm a rising star in the Tory <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm no longer a rising star. I'm on the other <laughs> side of the room. <laughs> completely wonderful, and I completely respect you. And you were fabulous on that day. You were utterly charming. And all I can say is thank you very much. Just, just so people know, thank you very much. But the, just so people know, the, the, we had lots and lots of mockery at, at the time. Uh, in the major government for all sorts of things, <laughs> including me. Um, uh, the, but the charter mark scheme was to recognise really, really good public servants, and that's what we were doing on that day. You know, and there were lots of other things that, 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 that the major government got wrong, but actually that was something we should have kept. Yeah? Yeah. With John Major, and much more importantly, with me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your name? Janet, Janet Leach. Janet Leach. A round of applause for Janet Leach. The first ever charter mark. I mean, that, at various points, I don't think anyone knew where that was going. <laughs> that least, was sensational. Least of all me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. That, no one has ever asked a question like that before. No, that was great. More. We need more Janet Leaches in this world. That brings us to the end. That was, I mean, the odds. I could have picked someone out. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Stunning. Wonderful. Did, did he pay you? <laughs> Can't lose another hundred quid, can I? <laughs> we skint by the end of the night. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being a wonderful audience, but special thanks tonight for a truly wonderful guest. Give it up for the amazing David Davis! Well, there you go, David Davis. I was absolutely lost in that at times, just loving hearing him just tell us everything about those moments, particularly that if they resigned from Checkers, they wouldn't be able to get a car home and would be stranded. You know, just these really basic bits of effectively logistics, but obviously with a political decision just to stop them resigning at the time. It's so funny that they did that. Um, and then obviously the move where he decides he goes and why he timed it when he did. And then the effect that had on Boris Johnson is just, it's amazing when you, these are recent events really. And you've watched them on telly thinking, I wonder what's really gone on there. And when you actually hear what really went on 
uh, it is very satisfying indeed. So what a fantastic night that was. And what a brilliant guest. Seven years uh, down the line, it was great to get David back on. Uh, and of course, my future guest in two weeks' time on the Monday the 11th of July, uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle. I mean, he is a huge character. That's going to be a very funny night. Two weeks after that, Alan Johnson. And then, obviously, at the Edinburgh Festival, I'm doing three shows. Gordon Brown on the 7th, Anna Sawa on the 15th, Joanna Cherry on the 22nd of August. You can get tickets for those at edfringe.com. Tickets for all of them are going very, very quickly. And I'm doing my new show up there, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right at the Pleasance Courtyard, every day from the 3rd to the 28th. And you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. That is enough. Oh, I can't even say self-promotion. I'm so bad at it. That is enough self-promotion for now. See you next time. Ta-ra. 